Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. You've probably heard about how good meditation is for you, but have you tried it? And how much do you know about the science behind the practice? Shannon Harvey is an award-winning health journalist and author of My Year of Living Mindfully. As you can tell from the title, she decided to test out the hype around meditation on herself. Shannon is also a mum of two and says that the experiment changed her life. Hi, Shannon. How are you? Hello. Very well. Thank you. Why did you start on this journey of research into mindfulness? I would like to say that I started this because as a health journalist, I wanted to tackle what is known as a mental health crisis. So the leading medical science journal, The Lancet, at the time I started the project had just released a special issue that proved that pretty much, well, absolutely every country in the world is facing and failing to tackle a host of mental health crises. But the truth is, (laughs) although that would be a very worthy uh, reason to motivate this film project and book project, um, there was also a very personal reason behind it. And that was that as a full-time working mother of two young children um, with a family history of mental illness, I was struggling. (laughs) And I think really this was a very elaborate way to put mindfulness to the test and to know once and for all whether or not it was worth fitting on my overburdened to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) So when you say you were struggling, um, was it just that intense combination of life that happens once you have children or was there anything specific that was really on your mind at that time? Yeah, there was... There were a few things. It it was the the work life two step that was really getting to me after I had my second baby. I started this project up when he was just one years old, and you know the sleep deprivation that comes with parenting young children, as well as trying to kind of juggle my ambition with my career, but also um, I have an autoimmune disease which causes quite painful arthritis throughout my body especially during times of high stress. And there were things that were sort of bothering me in some of the relationships with the people that I loved in my extended family. And I was struggling in the sense that I, you know, I had insomnia at least twice a week, one or two Mm. times a week, I would say. I would go through the night um, and listen to the, you know, the dawn of the the birds, the the chorus um, as they sang, you know, Mm. in the early morning hours. Which is so frustrating after you've had babies. <laughs> you just want, if you can sleep, you want to sleep if no one else is waking you up. Exactly. And that, you know, that I'm sure you're familiar with it, but just the thoughts, 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 looping, looping, looping. And the more you think, the more you think you want to go to sleep. And then the more you want to go to sleep, the more you can't. Yes. Um, it's like this vicious cycle. Yeah. It's not fair. Can you tell us how this experiment has changed your life? Yeah, so I initially committed to meditating for 20 minutes a day using an app and then very quickly realised that I needed to um, seek help from a real-life teacher, the kind of, I suppose, the mental health 
or meditation equivalent of a personal trainer. And so then I joined a meditation course, um, which was an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction course. And that got me meditating for 45 minutes a day until I was really ready for the meditation equivalent of a marathon, which was a 10-day silent retreat. (laughs) (laughs) And I can tell you that it was after that silent retreat that it became very clear to me that this was something that I had been looking for my whole life. It was a skill that I needed and that regardless of what the scientists who were tracking me throughout the project found, I knew that I would still be meditating beyond the year of living mindfully. Okay, I have to question you about this 10-day um, <laughs> meditation retreat because that is sounds really intense and frightening at the same time. Um, what was the experience like for you that made you so convinced it was going to be your answer in some ways? I, You know, I asked this of the um, teacher, Patrick Carney, who led the 10-day retreat because I was just right before I went, I got cold feet and I thought, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> like, like I'm busy, right? And it's why would I spend 10 days with no pleasurable stimulus, you know, no television to distract me, you know, no, you know, pocket-sized world in the palm of my hand in the form of my phone, you know, all my email switched off, not being around my kids for 10 days. Why would I choose (laughs) to do this instead of, you know, going on a family holiday or, you know, (laughs) getting some girlfriends together and and taking some me time on a beach somewhere with cocktails in (laughs) hand? And I asked my um, teacher about this before I went and he said, have you ever gone on a holiday and come back and felt that you actually needed another holiday to get over it? And I was like, yeah, that's a really familiar experience to me. And he said, you won't feel like that after the retreat. You will feel recharged and you will feel um, full and ready. And he was 100% right. Um, After it, it was just like the well-being effects of that silent retreat are pretty incredible. Was it difficult? Look, I trained for it. So because I had been meditating you know, sometimes for even longer than 45 minutes a day up to the retreat, I really felt, yeah, like I I was conditioned and, and it, yes, like I'm not going to lie, it was challenging. But my mindset going into it was really prepared and, you know, I watched others on the retreat, you know, even though we weren't talking to one another, you know, it became quite obvious that some people were really struggling and, and I, and I could sort of feel that it was just, you know, that being in the company of their own minds in that way was something that was too unpleasant for them. Um, whereas because I'd sort of been training in how to deal with unpleasantness, so to speak, I was, yeah, it, it wasn't so much of a problem for me. Can you explain a bit more about why you were also doing this for your children? Yeah, well, I mean... You only need to read whatever the latest article on mental health is at the moment to realise that mental health is a real problem and that it's sorely neglected. You know, I think um, contemporary medicine has done a really wonderful job of, you know, curing many diseases, of providing radical surgeries that can save lives. But our mental well-being, research on mental well-being has been so, so neglected. 
And one of the experts who's featured in the film is a man named Willem Kuyken, who's the director of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre. And something he told me really sticks with me, which is that we currently wait until we're at the, the equivalent of stage four cancer before we actually do anything about our mental well-being. And often, you know, that that's already when things have become extremely, extremely troubling. And his argument is that we really need to take a preventative approach to mental well-being. And those words really just struck me, especially knowing my own family history, you know, I people that I love, you know, have struggled with severe depression, with addictions, with bipolar disorder, and just knowing that it's, it's especially in this crazy distracted world that we live in, that was quite possibly going to be a problem my kids would face. And I guess I was looking for answers for the good of the world and for myself, but also for my kids. And I wanted to be able to show them something that, that they could do for themselves um, before they got to the equivalent of stage four cancer. Have you tried meditation with them? Of course, yeah, especially my seven-year-old. Um, yeah, definitely, um, and and my four-year-old in his own little way. So to give you an example, one of the, the things that my practice has really been teaching me is what I call being discomfortable, so comfortable even when I'm feeling uncomfortable or when I'm feeling something unpleasant. So that's been especially salient for me when it comes to the chronic pain that I experience because of my um, autoimmune condition. It's like feeling equanimity, feeling peace, even if something unpleasant is happening. And um, that's really what the training teaches me to turn towards that unpleasantness. And so with my four-year-old, I've, I've kind of been working with that on a really interesting level. So if he's feeling really disappointed, for example, about, you know, you've had too many sweets today, no, you can't have another lolly or whatever it is, and then watching him feel that rise of protest and I want, I want, I want, and then rather than soothing or distracting him, allowing him to feel that unpleasantness and being there with him to experience it, so not like ignoring it but just allowing it. And that's been really interesting, I think, um, you know, when fights over whether or not to turn the television off arise and all of that sort of <laughs> stuff, you know, like just allowing him to feel something unpleasant and showing him that that will pass. And it always does. Let's talk about the evidence, because as you mentioned, you were a health journalist for many years and you wanted with this book to sort of bring together all the science behind the impact of mindful living. What's the evidence that mindfulness should be part of a healthy lifestyle, like, for example, vegetables and exercise are a given for having a healthy lifestyle? Mm, that's a really good question. So, you know, 10 years ago, mindfulness was still very, very much um, considered fringe science in the academic literature. And when you look at the charts, there's no doubt that there's been this surge of interest and there's been now more than 6,000 papers that have been published on mindfulness. And, you know, just this year, you know, it looks like that it's kind of doubling every year. So I think the last time I looked at the literature, there were had already been, I think it was 1,200 papers published and we we're only halfway through the year at that point. Now, that's true that there's a surge, but I want to be really careful here to not overstate how much we know. 
So when you compare, say, for example, the literature that we have on, on say, diet for, um, you know, mental well-being, we have significantly more studies that have been done on eating a healthy diet than we have on how mindfulness might be able to um, help with mental illness or depression. Um, so just to kind of give you an example of that, you know, a meta-analysis, which is a study of studies on, say, diet and depression, had a pooled total of about 46,000 people as opposed to a meta-analysis of mindfulness and depression, which had only 1,300 people included. So uh-huh. I point that out because I think that there is a real problem at the moment that the science is oversold and overhyped. And although I can talk about it from my own perspective, and I can tell you that mindfulness profoundly changed my life and continues to change my life, we still have a lot more research to go before we know for whom and in what circumstances, in what specific doses and what techniques um, it should be applied. It's not an easy practice though, is it? <laughs> I know that I keep mentioning that, but I I'd have tried meditation at different times in my life and keep trying to come back to it. And I do feel the benefits of it when I do it, but the actual process itself can be quite challenging and you don't have to go to a 10-day silent retreat to feel that challenge, do you? No. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Did you ever take piano lessons when you were a kid? Yes. Yes. Okay. Can you remember <laughs> what it was like when you first sat at the piano and you had to kind of work out your fingering and like what notes were and it probably took you, you know, months and months before you could even bash out a tune. Do you remember that feeling? Oh, yeah. It was very frustrating. Yeah. So mindfulness is exactly the same. Like, so whenever people say things like, oh, yeah, I tried mindfulness. I was really bad at it. So I stopped. It'd be like saying that to a concert pianist. Like, imagine if that concert pianist had stopped after that first lesson. So mindfulness is a skill. Like, it's not something that anybody can just do. It's like you need to train in it, yeah. But it is hard and it is so unpleasant. And for me, I've been meditating now for more than a 1,000 days straight and I still find it monumentally unpleasant. And I would still rather watch, you know, Gorgeous Highlanders on Netflix than sit down (laughs) with my unpleasant mind. (laughs) (laughs) And that is something I think parents would struggle with is the consistency of practice. Again, going back to my own experience, um, I've tried putting a lock on my door. I've mm. tried putting drawn pictures of myself sitting meditating, saying, <laughs> don't disrupt mummy. And um, it hasn't worked. So actually finding a consistent time to practice is quite difficult. But if you are looking at it as a way of um, you're practicing at getting better, you want that consistency, don't you? I mean, have you got any advice for parents on how they can make it consistent? Absolutely, I do. And, um, you know, I'm an evidence-based health journalist. So when I have problems like this, I turn to the science. And so when I faced this same problem, when I started meditating, my youngest was one and my eldest was um, four. It was like, and I was working full time. It's like, how am I 
how on earth am I possibly going to be able to fit this into my day? So I turned to something called if-then planning, which is a technique developed by Peter Goldwitzer from New York University. And it's a technique that basically encourages us to set when and where we intend to practice, but also to plan for what we're going to do when life gets in the way. (laughs) And so like my, I'll tell you what my if then planning technique looks like now. And this is, bear in mind, it's, you know, a thousand days down the track. So if it is 6am in the morning, then I will meditate sitting up in my bed with my headphones on, you know, for 45 minutes. If my kids wake up early and I don't get an opportunity to practice, then I will meditate at the first opportunity I get, say, for example, on my lunch break. If my day is really hectic and I don't get a lunch break while I'm at work, then I will meditate, um, you know, in the car before I go into the house. If uh, I don't get a chance to meditate, then, then I will meditate, you know, just before I go to bed. And and what's really great about this is I don't have a really regular scheduled life where I can say, yes, every single morning I can get up and meditate at 6 a.m. And it helps me to plan for all the curveballs that life is going to throw at me. So another example is, you know, if it's the weekend and there is no opportunity at all to, you know, to get time for myself, then I will put an audio book on for my seven-year-old son and I will meditate when my four-year-old is having his nap. So it's like um, really allows you to plan for all the disruptions that you can expect in your life. Oh, that's incredible. I love that idea. <laughs> you did mention that you had done a course before you did the um, 10-day silent retreat and that was part of your experiment for this book. Do you need a teacher to meditate, do you think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I know that's a very unpopular thing to say. Um, and I know that most of us who sort of feel that surge of motivation we, we, we download an app and we decide we're going to, com- you know, commit to practice every single day. But, you know, it's like the learning from an app is great and I still use an app every single day, mostly to keep track of my meditation hours, quite frankly. But I think that um, learning from an app is like the equivalent of learning yoga from a YouTube video. It's like, you kind of you get the idea, but you don't know what you're doing wrong. You can't ask the teacher, you know, if your hips are in the right position um, or why that particular part of your back is hurting when you do that particular move. And so finding a mindfulness teacher, especially one who is qualified and, you know, has got decades, not minutes of you know, teacher training under their belt, um, it's like finding a personal trainer for your mind. And it really turbocharges and it means that you can make progress um, and and get to those kind of, get to that place where I got to after the silent retreat where it was like, oh, right, this is why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that, this is why I'm doing this, how can you tell if it's working? Hmm, you'll know, you'll know, <laughs> you know, like you'll just catch yourself in a moment and you'll go, right, so you know, for an, ex- an example for me is like mindfulness enables this kind of space between 
something like a stimulus, something that might set me off and my actual response to that stimulus. So um, one of the challenges with my work is that I work with my husband and when you work with somebody who you know really well, there's always that temptation to snap or to um, say something that is unwise. With the mindfulness training, I've got this space so I recognize the stimulus and I'm able to catch myself before I say something really stupid to my husband. (laughs) (laughs) How would you recommend people start? Mm, I do recommend that people download um, a good app and give it a try um, and just build, you know, to a really simple practice like a 10-minute to 20-minute practice a day. And then the next step I would say is to enroll into a course and to to join a group to to you know to find out from others what their own challenges might be and to get that wise guidance from a teacher. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. That's Shannon Harvey, author of My Year of Living Mindfully. To find a copy of the book, go to the links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.